0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Mueller investigation appears about to wrap up and deliver a report to the attorney general. Most reports expect the Mueller report to be delivered next week. Let's talk about the parameters of what's about to unfold with Yoni Applebaum from The Atlantic. He wrote the impeach cover story for the March issue. Thanks a lot for joining us. Hey, nice to be with you. well, I wanted to start with just the way Robert Mueller has gone about his business here and what we can glean from that. We've had lots of indictments, lots of guilty pleas, but really this report, people really don't know what it's going to be like. They don't know what's in it. They don't know exactly when it's going to come. Um, he's run a really tight ship. Yeah, Mueller has uh, shown
1: the deafening power of silence. Uh, he has made remarkably few public statements through his spokesperson. He's mostly allowed this uh, really remarkable series of indictments to to speak for his investigation, uh, and it's not wholly clear what form a- any report that he files will ultimately take. We do know a couple things about it. One is that under Department of Justice guidelines. Uh, a prosecutor cannot indict a sitting president. So, for those listeners who are holding their breath and waiting for that, that is uh, not in the cards. Uh, a second thing we know is is that he is uh, at a minimum supposed to tell the attorney general why he chose to file charges against those uh, who he has charged and why he chose not to file charges in other cases. Uh, so he'll have to give something to summarize his activities to Bill Barr, the, the new attorney general. Uh, beyond that, he has he has a range of options and and. One which uh, you know would be consistent with his conduct so far uh, would be basically to summarize what he's done and and leave it at that. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you could imagine Robert Mueller uh, filing a report that said that he believes uh, that the president has has committed crimes which he is not in a position to indict. So, so uh, anything between those two poles is possible.
0: Now, um, one of the things that's interesting here is to play out what, what is going to happen in the next week or so. We're going to see someone like Michael Cohen come before Congress now and start talking about this. And a lot of things are going to begin unfolding in Congress that are going to, um, you know, possibly lead to more action. Can you talk about how that's going to – how the Mueller report is going to translate to Congress?
1: Yeah, it's such a great question. We, we don't know what form the report will take, even if it is a minimal report, which says merrily uh, something along the lines of, I have filed the indictments that I intend to file, uh, with nothing much further for Congress. Uh, by this point, we know that the president's campaign chair, his vice chair, his first national security advisor, two of his foreign policy advisors uh, are guilty of of criminal misconduct. And and then beyond that, uh, we have a documented broad-based purposeful effort by Russian military intelligence to interfere in in the election of the United States. Uh, None of that is resolved by the charges that Mueller has filed. Uh, It it raises as many questions as it answers. Michael Cohen's a great reminder that the investigations to the president have sprawled well beyond the Mueller probe. So Mueller himself was charged with looking at the possibility of collusion between the president's campaign in Russia and the nature of Russia's interference. Uh, But Cohen, although a critical witness in that probe, Uh, has also told New York prosecutors that the president of the United States uh, directed uh, his commission of serious campaign finance crimes. Uh, And that is uh, still sort of an open and unresolved matter, although Cohen himself has pleaded guilty to that. So what Cohen says before Congress— remains to be seen. But whatever he says, his appearance is a reminder that the sprawling criminal uh, and uh, congressional investigations facing this presidency uh, are not going any away. In, in fact, just this afternoon, we have word that they are expanding, that the district attorney in Manhattan is is looking into uh, Paul Manafort's uh, financial crimes and may charge him separately.
0: And that would be largely something that would, uh, that would be to evade the pardon if uh, Donald Trump gave a pardon pardon to Paul Manafort, this would would stop it.
1: Right. In theory, New York has some of the strongest uh, protections against double jeopardy of any state. So it remains to be seen whether or not it would hold up. But that seems to be the theory under which they're operating.
0: Uh, I wanted to say something about the way Congress is – the Democrats in Congress are laying the groundwork and behaving here. We had this interesting article from Adam Schiff yesterday in the Washington Post where he – just uh made a plea to republican colleagues and asked them you know to 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 kind of step up here and be independent um he said they must speak out your time for silent disagreement is over this is going to require courage i know people the president's popular among your base but it's time to show some loyalty to your country What, what what's he doing here Well, he chairs one of the rare islands of of bipartisanship in most
1: Congresses, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, It fell apart in the last Congress uh, under the chairmanship of of Devin Nunes. Now that Schiff has taken the gavel, he's clearly trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Uh, He also faces a a, a real challenge, as do other congressional Democrats. They believe that uh, they're looking at... uh, Allegations and and evidence misconduct of the most serious kind on the part of the president. They're not quite sure how to go about persuading their Republican con- colleagues that this is the case, uh, and they don't want their investigations to assume the taint of partisanship. So they're looking for allies. They're looking to build bridges across the aisle. Uh, It's going to be a difficult endeavor. But one thing we know from the impeachment of Richard Nixon is that what actually does it is not op-eds in the Washington Post. It's the assemblage of evidence. Uh, In that case, Republicans who, who talked about it at the time and later said that they were haunted by the thought that not acting against the president's clear and documented misconduct would amount to granting license to that misconduct, encouraging future presidents to behave in the same way, and that ultimately was the thought they couldn't countenance and so if, if Schiff is really looking to build those bipartisan bridges, uh, he's probably better served by continuing to put the evidence out there uh, and confronting his Republican colleagues with it uh, and encouraging them to think uh, about the long-term effects of Congress not acting to rein in a president who is acting in this fashion.
0: And the Democrats are going to get an opportunity to start putting Republicans on uh, the record as early as next week when they go with this national emergency declaration um, vote to reject what Donald Trump has done. Uh, Republicans will get a chance to go along if they think it's a bad idea. It seems like an opportunity to show some uh, space between yourself and the president if you're a Republican.
1: Right, although not a whole lot of Republicans seem to be hankering for that opportunity right now. Uh, You know, the the National Emergency uh, Declaration... Uh, maybe we can put that in the bucket of, of things that presidents do uh, that Congress may object to uh, but, but are you not unique to this administration. There have been a lot of national emergency declarations. This one has a different legal foundation than, than many previous ones, uh, but this is the process unfolding the way that Congress designed it, which is the president issues the, the proclamation and then the House and the Senate have the, the opportunity to override it. Um, This is a little bit different, perhaps, than than some of the criminal allegations facing the president and his aides, uh, which really uh, have taken us somewhat outside of of the normal process and, and led to the appointment of a special counsel.
0: I'm talking with Yoni Applebaum from The Atlantic. He wrote the Impeach cover story for the March issue there. And we're talking about the impending Mueller uh, report that is going to come sometime next week, according to reports. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to hear about a film series where faith and film come together. Stay tuned for that. I want to explore a little more about um, Republican Loyalty to Trump, one of the things that's been happening is um Mr. McCabe from the FBI has been going around uh, on talk shows and, and his book tour, and he is discussing how you know when they were behind closed doors with the gang of eight uh, uh, Congress people, and they were mentioning things like we're going to investigate the president they nobody objected, no people hearing about the the Republicans hearing about this thought it was okay. Is there something where Republicans behind closed doors will behave differently than Republicans out in public?
1: Well, I I think that that has been a persistent theme of this presidency. And in this specific case, uh, the Republicans in the room have declined to comment because it was a gang of eight meetings, so so they won't confirm or deny McCabe's allegations. But uh, it would fit with a broader pattern of conduct in which uh, many senior Republicans in this town are perfectly happy uh, to Express their displeasure with the president, uh, their sense that he is unfit for the office that he holds behind closed doors, uh, and then give speeches which are uh, either avoiding that question or coming to different conclusions on on the floor of their chambers. Uh, That is going to be a problem for for any Democratic investigation of the president. They will need to get Republican uh, elected officials in this town to line up their private remarks with their public conduct. Uh, And there are some very real incentives facing those Republicans, particularly the threat of a primary challenge, uh, which militate against their doing that.
0: While Adam Schiff shows some, um, I, uh, you know, motivation to push Republicans, Nancy Pelosi doesn't seem to feel the same thing. Uh, she, I guess, I've come to the conclusion that she wants to win in the next general election and doesn't really, uh, in her gut, want impeachment. I, I don't know where that conclusion is coming from. I have no evidence. I don't talk to her. But is it? Uh, does that sound about right to you?
1: Well, she's been clear in her public statements that she doesn't think the moment for impeachment is ripe yet. Uh, She's a little vaguer on on whether or not it might be prior to 2020. The House right now is is sort of proceeding with a three-pronged set of investigations, one under Schiff on the Intelligence Committee, uh, under Jerry Nadler on on Judiciary, Uh, also that the House Oversight Committee is is looking into a variety of alleged misconduct. Uh, You put those three together, uh, and you can read it one of two ways. Uh, Either this is an effort by Democrats to start Putting evidence into the public record, start gathering specifics, taking their own testimony from witnesses, uh, not having to be reliant on leaks in the media from various prosecutors' office, but but actually being able to drive. The conversation themselves, and and to focus public attention on the acts that most concern them, uh, as they build slowly toward impeachment, uh, or it could be uh, exactly what you suggest, which is uh, a strategy of discrediting the president and and then waiting for the next general election. Uh, it may even be the case that that House Democratic leaders don't quite know themselves uh, and are waiting to see exactly what they can turn up and document.
0: Is there anything that hasn't happened with the Mueller probe that you expected? I, did Did you expect Donald Trump Jr. to get indicted? Was there something else going on that you you felt would happen before the release of the report?
1: Well, I think we don't quite know what form that release will take. There are an unusual number of sealed indictments uh, on the docket on the court where where some of Mueller's indictments have been posted. We have no idea if those are tied to this investigation. Uh, So there may be more indictments still to come, even if if the report itself is imminent. Uh, I I think one of the things that... um, is a little frustrating to me and many other observers, is that Mueller had something of a dual mandate, both to investigate collusion, but also to investigate it within the context of Russia's efforts to undermine American democracy. Uh, He has done that superlatively well. Uh, In fact, he's done it well enough to have garnered praise from senior administration officials for his indictments of the Russians who are behind these acts. What we haven't had really is any kind of meaningful reform, any kind of safeguards coming into place uh, to prevent the recurrence of such attacks. And indeed, there's reason to believe that some of these attacks were leveled again in 2018. Uh, So if uh, I and others were hoping that uh, a thorough and independent investigation uh, could help break the partisan gridlock and galvanize uh, some real efforts to protect American democracy and to harden it against these attempts at interference. Uh, So far, those hopes have been bitterly disappointed. Uh, It remains to be seen whether or not there is a report uh, from the Mueller probe that that leads that to change. Uh,
0: Do you think, I mean, it sounds like so far, the whole thing, the Mueller um, report and investigations, they, they haven't changed people's minds. When you read the polls, Seventy-four percent of Republicans say they believe Trump over Mueller. Um, Is is the report going to change those numbers? Is what is about to transpire going to be um, something that changes public opinion on this, do you think?
1: Well, certainly uh, views of Mueller have become more partisan and more polarized in recent months as the president has – really accelerated uh, his attacks on Robert Mueller's independence and credibility. Uh, The numbers are a little hard to read. There are fewer Americans today who self-identify as Republicans uh, than there were when Donald Trump was elected. And so although he enjoys the overwhelming support of those who still do, uh, that has not been uh, without a diminution in in the support among Trump voters. Uh, Those are two different categories. Uh, So there are reasons for Donald Trump to look at these numbers and and be concerned. Uh, Beyond that, um, what we know from past processes of a presidential investigation and indictment is that some of the president's supporters are likely to be uh, wedded to him more Closely than ever by the findings of this report. They'll see their champion under attack uh, and grow more closed to contradictory information or information that they do not wish to accept. Uh, And at the same time, uh, it's possible that that would also coexist with a situation in which more and more Americans in the middle move decisively against the president. Uh, Those two things, which which would seem to point in opposite directions, his hardest core supporters doubling down and and the broad middle veering away, uh, often can actually proceed in tandem. And that might be uh, an outcome of, of a report.
0: Do you think Donald Trump's unusual candidacy and presidency have just changed the standard for impeachment that the things are the bar came, went so so low and so many odd places that really uh, people just don't know what to what to how to you know he's just judged by a different standard
1: <laughs> maybe you can ask me that again in 2 years <laughs> um i i look at this and and look back at other past cases. Impeachment has always been a partisan question. It's it's fundamentally asking Congress, is this president fit to continue in office? Uh, and when the process starts, it's always the president's political opponents who, who are closest to saying no and, and always his defenders who say, yes, he's perfectly fine. Um, what happens once the process gets rolling is that Congress actually has to confront the evidence and specifics in detail. That's when minds start to change. Uh, and so I I think it's premature to, to suggest that, that Donald Trump is an exception or different than past presidents. He looks a lot like some past presidents, uh, particularly Andrew Johnson. Um, it's more accurate to say that this is a Congress which, under Paul Ryan, the uh, totally uh, abnegated its responsibilities to look into this president and his conduct. Uh, and under Speaker Pelosi, it hasn't gone much further. And until Congress actually uh, gets down there and, and starts sifting through the evidence and, and confronting it, uh, it's unlikely to, to make any progress on that.
0: Yoni Appelbaum is a senior editor at The Atlantic. He wrote the Impeach cover story for the March issue. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the possibilities of the Mueller report. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about a film series where faith and film come together. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is a world view on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Milo Stalik is off this week, but we're going to talk about film, and we're going to talk about a film series where faith and film come together, and it is happening at Facets, and it's called the uh, Religion in the Frame Film Series. And the the force behind this is Gretchen Helfrich,
2: former host of Odyssey here on WBEZ. Great to see you, Gretchen. Great to see you, Jerome. How are you? I'm all right. I'm looking forward to the fest, which starts tonight. And can with, I just plug? Can I jump right in with the plug? Please. Okay. <laughs> and
0: uh, explain the strategy here. You're, you're working with the Martin Marty Center at the University of Chicago, and, and you guys are, are kind of brewing up something different.
2: That's right. So it's the Martin Marty Center, which has the subtitle of the Center for the Public Understanding of Religion. And then there's Facets Multimedia, which is all about film and better understanding of film. So you put the two together and you get a film festival where we have seven films, each of which has some connection to religion, lots of different ways in which these films connect up with religion. But we're going to screen the films and then we're going to have a talk afterwards with uh, someone, varies from night to night, uh, about the themes in the film, about some take on the film. But, you know, it satisfies, I think, two urges. I think a lot of people want to talk more about religion. We live in a really religious society or sometimes we do. Um, and people love talking about film. Everybody likes going to the movies and then talking about the movie afterwards. And so we meet both of those needs uh, in what I hope will be a really interesting and engaging
0: way. And this is the second time you've done it. I went last year and saw Groundhog Day, and then we talked with a Buddhist scholar about the reoccurrence of things that happen in Groundhog Day and in life.
2: So that conversation will be extended this year, somewhat, uh, because we're going to see Slaughterhouse-Five on Tuesday, uh, which you will recall as a film not about Buddhism, (laughs) but rather about the bombing of Dresden. However... um, Same thing. Interesting conceptions of time and how time – how our conceptions of time relate to suffering and our ability to process suffering. Super interesting. You should come to that one. You should come to all of them, Jerome. Uh,
0: I would like to come to all of them. I think your lineup this time is spectacular. You're starting right off the bat with uh, Joan of Arc tonight. And I I, I always encourage people to see silent film. And this one is the the be-all and end-all.
2: Kind of. It is sort of the be-all and end-all of silent film. It's from 1928. um, French production – it is based on the actual transcripts of Joan of Arc's trials and it's a it's a incredibly compelling film it's a little weird i'll say if you have if you're not used to silent film well even if you are used to silent film this one's weird <laughs> so uh, you know it's primarily the face of the actress playing Joan of Arc so we're going to see that tonight and uh, we'll be talking with Françoise Melter from the University of Chicago who's written about Joan of Arc and subjectivity and and the many 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 ways in which Joan of Arc challenged the structures of authority in her day and our day and goes on and on. So I'm super excited about that one.
0: Uh, you've got First Reform, the Ethan Hawke film uh, that is directed by Paul Schrader, which was up for a bunch of awards and seems really super interesting. People might have heard of that one. There's others that people might not have heard of. There is a Iranian film and I wanted to bring in Nari Safavi, who's standing by for the weekend passport segment. And he is familiar with the film Under the Moonlight. Great to see you now, right?
3: Yeah, I'm sneaking in uh, a little bit early because I love that film and uh, got to meet once the director of it, Razamir Karimi. So...
0: Tell us about it. What, what's this um, particular uh, film about? Under the Moonlight doesn't sound very
2: faithy.
3: Yeah, it's it, it, is, it is not very
2: faithy, but it's sort Sounds of a little romantic, actually. Uh, <laughs> kind it,
3: of. exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's actually romance as a part uh, 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 Persian conception of romance has a lot to do with it too, and uh, this is really more about uh, a seminarian who starts to have doubts and uh, and is uh, decides that he wants to go out into the real world and figure out what the humanity is all about and he crosses a bridge where a lot of homeless people kind of tend to hang out and starts to encounter a lot of the social problems and decides ultimately that as he's about to graduate from the seminary and become a cleric that he wants to not do that and basically uh, uh, dedicate himself to social service and I think that uh, Rezamir Karimi, if I understand correctly his history, he himself was trying to become a seminarian and then decides to become a filmmaker instead and uh, he also is. this is sort of his homage to a Persian poem that's about that kind of goes uh, by, by, by poet Sadi, who says that uh, the best way to worship God is to serve humanity that it's not really about whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or a Hindu but it's really about serving humanity that's the best way to worship God and I think this is his filmic interpretation of that poem
0: Wow. Well, that's a pretty solid um, endorsement of the film and very deep endorsement of the film. And that's with Scott Alexander. He's um, going to do the chit-chat after that film. It
2: be <laughs> <laughs> we call it the engaging conversation, but if you want to call it chit-chat, on, that's just fine. Yes, yeah, Scott Alexander, who is uh, on the Mar- Marty Center board with me and, and who... Uh, His work focuses on Christian-Muslim, Catholic-Muslim specifically, relations. Um, He chose this film, recommended it to me. I think it's a gem. Um, I do – I have to say if I keep doing this festival, I will try to have an Iranian film every year because there are so many good Iranian films and they need to be seen by more people. That's – I want to be their film PR person. And
0: they've wrestled with faith in an interesting way. I mean that, that is part of the deal now.
2: Exactly. Well, it's it's oh,
3: they they deal with faith and politicize faith quite a bit, and, and that produces a lot of interesting, I would say, contrarian kind of a thinking about role of religion in the society, and uh, and a lot of times they get uh, censored, uh, but some of them actually do get made. It's amazing under that system.
0: Um, so you've got some other great films that I didn't know anything about really in the series um Black Robe is one. Uh, it's a film by Bruce Beresford. He's an Australian filmmaker who I who people know from Driving Miss Daisy and he had like some big Hollywood hits, but I knew nothing about Black Robe, but it seems really interesting.
2: So uh, if it's okay, I'll let Rich Miller tell sure. you about Black Robe. Rich Miller is going to be speaking after the film.
4: He'll be yeah. doing the chit-chat. Huh? He'll be doing the chit-chat. will be doing the chitchat. <laughs> the chit-chat and the engaged conversation. So thanks Jerome. <laughs> A Black Robe is the story of a 17th century young Jesuit missionary who embarks on a long journey across a fur trading route accompanied by Algonquins to missionize the Huron as winter sets in. And the Algonquins take him along this route and – they encounter a, a, a group of First nations, the montagna who 've never encountered the French and who themselves have um, a shaman who judges the the missionary Father Laforge as the devil as a demon and so quickly you get the sense you, – you you understand <laughs> that this prod, this this endeavor is not only facing serious natural challenges but is walking into a huge culture conflict. And immediately or pretty quickly, the priest's claims to knowing and presuming what is good for humanity are called into question. Um, The Montagna convince the Algonquin to leave the missionary and his translator and um, a lover he's taken on. They leave them alone and join, okay, uh, 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 the Montagna on a... uh, expedition, Um, a few of them come back to save the priest and are attacked by the Iroquois. And in a very brutal scene, you see another instance of a culture class, although now it's multidimensional. The priest and those accompanying him are able to manage uh, an escape and return to their trip to this mission deep in Quebec. Uh, to evangelize the Huron. The translator and his lover leave the priest, and there he finds himself alone deep in New Quebec. Um, And the priest who had staffed the mission is on his deathbed. He's able to convert the Huron there. Um, As the film concludes... The viewers are told, and I don't want to give too much away, that disaster (laughs) besets those who are converted. And so you have a film that raises the question of what is called the ethics of belief. What are religion's responsibilities to others? And to what extent can they presume to know what is good? So you have an ongoing struggle throughout the film of rival pictures of what is humanly good. Um, and especially, I think, challenging for many viewers is the depiction of missionizing Catholicism that has, at its root, an intimate connection with death.
2: It's wow. not a light film. Let's just – let's yeah. be clear. This is, a, this yeah. is a, a heavy, violent, brutal film.
0: You know, it, it's, it's done in a kind of straight-up colonial yeah. conflict terms. Mm-hmm. But it translates to any kind of religious proselytizing, mm-hmm. doesn't it? It's a, a, right. a, a, a,
4: a, a, when are you right to um,
0: ram your beliefs down somebody's throat?
4: Well, yes. And what's especially interesting about this film is that the way in which the promise of salvation is offered is never – Itself innocent, you, the re, the viewers are asked: Is this a quid pro quo? Is this done delusionally? Is this done deceptively? Um, and so the, the the methods of proselytizing are depicted in ways that are troubling. But the other thing about the f- another thing about the film that I would want to call to our attention is that the. The moral point of view of the film is never one that gives the viewer a safe space. No one is morally innocent. So at one level, proselytizing is troubled. So are those who are proselytized, right? There is a very complex moral scene that the film, uh, as it were, portrays. And so as a viewer, you're denied any comfortable position if you think you're certain about what's right or wrong in this film you are committing the same mistakes as those who are depicted in the film
0: i would like to have some sympathy with the indigenous people who i know are going to get overrun in the end but the um, but the it sounds like the shaman is uh, meets these people and decides they're the devil that's a pretty heavy um, that's a pretty heavy uh, statement. Uh, you're, you're you're marking them for death, and you're you're doing the same violence. Yeah, I think it's,
2: if if I can jump in, sure. I think it's fair to say that the the native people who are depicted in this movie are not depicted as credulous or mm-hmm. uh, you know they're not in awe of this Catholic priest at all. I mean, for many of them, it's the idea of conversion is a transaction. They they've got a full fledged worldview. They don't need yeah. another religion, and they have a lot to say about it. And they think that the missionary is stupid and foolish, and and likely to die if they don't help him, or likely to die by them, or you know any number of possibilities. But it, it, these are absolutely it's absolutely not a depiction of uh, victimized no. native people, in my opinion.
4: No, and and they note several times he's wearing a black robe. Right. And so that's not just a casual gesture. They're marking him as symbolized in a certain way, that black robe uh, suggesting that he's an agent of death and destruction. Um, So you have that certainly going on. And again, no one's point of view is romanticized or valorized. But it is true that the First Nations are depicted as having a life that's perfectly fine – um, and uh, enabling them to survive in these conditions. All right. So, but is the is the lesson of the film mm.
0: <laughs> that that religions can't get along and they're never going to get along?
4: Well, I think it depends. I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> I, 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 I don't. I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. Yeah. I'm not sure there's any single takeaway. Um, I mean, it certainly is a film that says religions that presume to know what's best for others regardless of their religions, are opening the door for a tremendous amount of uh, trouble and, and conflict.
0: But, I mean, in, in their essence, all religions say they do know what's right for others. That's, that's their thing. Well, you, I you, think you know what's right for people and you want to, you want to spread that.
2: I think if you wanted mm. to end up at the end of this movie mm. thinking, oh, well, you know, it's all just a different interpretation of the same thing and we yeah. can all get along. No, this, yeah. this film does not give you that. That's not an option. These worldviews don't match. Uh, the religions don't go together. And if they're going to be put together, it's going to be by some sort of jury rigging and not some sort of transcendent, ah, we all see things from this higher perspective where we're all the same. I don't, I don't think this no. film saying that at all.
4: It's not saying that. And it's, it's, it is about conflict and, and cultural difference. But it's also having the, re, the viewer ask, which of these religions actually has the human good? correctly in view, and the the missionizing Catholic in many ways operates on a very stark dualism between spiritual and earthly goods, Um, and those he's evangelizing don't have that worldview and are actually doing quite fine with theirs, and and so his dualistic kind of worldview is called into question uh, in this film.
0: Richard Miller is professor of religious ethics at the University of Chicago Divinity School. He's the author of Friends and Other Strangers' Studies in Religion, Ethics, and Culture. Thanks a lot for joining us. And Black Robe is showing on Wednesday the 27th, and Richard is doing the chit-chat after that. He'll do a fine <laughs> job, Gretchen. <laughs> and Gretchen,
4: conversation.
0: And Gretchen, we didn't mention the. there's a great um, – it sounds like a great South Korean film. Oh, yes. Uh, Secret Sunshine. Secret Sunshine. It's on the 28th next Thursday. Wow. So this is going to go one week every night. You're going to talk religion and film. That's right. 22nd to the 28th, uh, starting now.
2: Starting tonight, <laughs> 7 p.m. at Facets.
0: Gretchen Helfrich, great to see you. Great to see you, Jerome. And Naree Safavi, we'll see you in a second on uh, Weekend Passport here, and we'll talk about uh, a fun band that's coming to town.
3: Sounds great.
5: Yeah.
0: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here with recommendations on how to have a fun time this weekend. How are you, Nari? Good day, Jerome. It's great to be back again. Nari, uh, what's your first recommendation? Where are we going?
3: We're going to Mex America basically on this segment. And, uh, and the first thing I want to uh, make sure people know about there is an opening reception tonight at the National Museum of Mexican Art. And it's an opening reception of an artist called Rocío Caballero. And uh, it seems like a very interesting artist who was born in Mexico, Mexico City, Distrito Federal, in 1964. And these uh, deals a lot with symbolism uh, and symbolisms coming from uh, Mexican culture, Mex America culture, as a, adopted as his own language, a visual language. It's worthwhile checking it, and their opening reception is tonight.
0: It uh, has to do with exploring representation of the female and male bodies and the symbolic currency that they're associated with. So it sounds good right there. It
3: sounds very tantalizing. It sounds like we're we're on the right track.
0: And, of course, the National Museum of Mexican Art is always a riot to go to. Right. Um, what's uh, what else is up now?
3: And we also have an interesting uh, band uh, that does a lot of very experimental music of uh, Latin and pop and and electronic uh, from uh, from the Southern California, from South Los Angeles, called Cinco Dor performing tonight in Chicago.
0: And we have the members of Scene Colour here, Chrissy Regalado, and she's uh, sitting right here in front of me. This is one half of the South L.A. bass duo. Nice to meet you.
6: Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank and
0: uh, David Aquino is here. He is the guitarist and multi-instrumentalist with hey, uh, Scene Colour. Nice to have you. Thanks for joining us. Tell us a little about yourself, David. What's up? So
5: Scene Colour is a band from South L.A. We started uh, when we were in high school, towards the end. Uh, Grisha was 16 and I was 17. Um, we, we started uh, r- writing music as soon as we got together and then
0: um, what is
6: And we've been playing ever since, uh, working hard to get this project to everyone.
0: Now, your uh, background, you trained as an opera singer?
6: Yes. That's Originally, I wanted to be an opera singer.
0: That's great.
6: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what stopped you, David?
6: well i was part of an all girls choir and when the director moved to mexico i was kind of lost i didn't know what direction to take and that's when i when i saw david again because i had met him before but he came into my life again and he offered to start this project and to compose songs and and just to make music and i was like yeah let's do it yeah
0: um, now, t- t- what, um, explain the name of your band, Sin Colour.
6: Sin Colour. Without well, color. Yes. The reason why we named it Sin Colour is so that we don't get attached to a color, genre, or style. Everything or nothing.
0: So you can go back to opera if you want.
6: Yes, exactly. We've had a performance in L.A. at the Civic Center Studios where I began the set with two opera arias I sang Früling Stiemen, and the second one was... Oh my gosh, I forgot, but yes. I tried to add a little bit of everything so our audience could have a va- variety of options.
3: Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about... You know, so- South LA and just Southern California is an amazing melting pot of what's going on in America, yeah. and, uh, and you seem to have influences from all kinds of... Uh, uh, sources coming at you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your inspirations and your creative process. How do you approach doing uh, a
5: project? Let's say. Well, there's so many uh, great bands in LA. Like uh, pretty much at any given time, any day of the week, uh, um, any night, you could just go outside and go to a venue. And there's these all these so many amazing bands, local bands, independent groups, yeah. and they're all they're all oh, our yeah. peers. At the end of the day, we all hang out, we all know each other. So yeah. a, a lot of that rubs off on us. It rubs off on me personally, because um, I, I see all so many different instrumentations. There's like uh, cumbia, electronic music, the DJs, yeah.
0: uh, mer- merengue, pop. It, it's and it, it's it's so um, mixed yeah. well. And you, the band has kind of expanded, and you've done kind of like uh, things with uh, cellists and things like that. And
5: yes. yeah, we, we, we every uh, once a year we have our uh, we do a single orchestra performance so that that's um us too, backed by uh, an orchestra so the, the last one that we did was in december the show that she was talking about yeah. where she started off with the opera arias. we we performed with a 16-piece orchestra that we gathered that uh we, and we we do all of this from scratch when it's our own shows so in terms of promo booking um uh, the the venues uh gathering everything together and just, just uh, making it all, all possible. It's, it's, a, it's a big task. It's a huge task. Like you'd normally see like a huge team of people and uh, huge productions running it. But this was just uh, – it's, it's always done just by uh, um, Chrissy and I. And then we have like our, our – now we have like a, a nice little team of people that are, that are um, working with us. Well, we yeah. want to
0: hear some of your music. Why don't, uh, Should we play a song? We've got three here. And uh, I don't, which one would you like to hear? I think the most popular is uh, Un Pensamiento. That one's on the list, right?
6: Yeah, Pensamiento.
0: Let's hear that. scene calore and we have the members of scene calore with us here on weekend passport they're in chicago and uh they're performing where tonight tonight we'll be at Doors, right here in chicago oh terrific and um now that song was interesting do you have a philosophy with i really enjoyed it the with electronics and how you want to blend um things like accordions with electronics <laughs>
5: um we, we don't have a philosophy or any kind of structure. It just all kind of happens uh organically with like whatever's around whoever's around us. Um we have so many uh we work with so many musicians throughout the time and uh uh it's kind of like whatever's at our at our um uh read, disposal. Yeah. Yeah, at our yeah,
3: this is really uh, interesting because it seems like you seem to be very sort of a self-sufficient duo over here. You can do things by yourselves and do more <laughs> instrumental and more electronic things, and just the two of you. Or you can expand and have collaborators, and all, all go go almost go up to orchestral level. Is this uh, a trend uh, for musicians of your generations to kind of be be this flexible in terms of how you approach the music?
6: Um well not that i know of we just love music well i i love music and i when i first began this project with david i i told him that i wanted to do everything since i came from a all girls choir um we we were trained classically and we, we would also uh, get booked to perform like in museums or galleries and or like a folklorico show where they had folklorico dancers and we had to sing with the mariachi. So whatever opportunity I had, like if they had a a solo that was like a flamenco song, I would say, I can do it. (laughs) Or a mariachi song, I would go on YouTube and I would find my favorite artists and imitate them. So because of that background, I think that's why our music takes many routes and directions.
3: Fascinating. Speaking of flamenco, I think... uh you said you may be able to do some a cappella performance yeah, for us. Yeah, really, I can. Por definitely. favor.
6: Okay. <laughs> okay. Fuego Fausto. <laughs> <Okay>. Lo mismo que fuego, Fue tu lo mismo y tu es Lo fuego, Fue tu lo mismo y tu es querer. Si te persigue Le llama y echa a correr Malaya los negros que alcanzaron Amén
0: Chrissy Regalado, fascinating, fascinating.
3: <laughs> I should get uh, to contextualize things. Uh, you guys are very jet lagged. You arrived from LA last <laughs> night, and then you had to go to Appleton, Wisconsin, yes. without sleep to perform over there. And I guess it was very well received in the performance. And Thank and you man. have a magnificent, mighty voice for a little woman. Than Thank you. you. Are. <laughs> so it's a really impressive, uh, uh, with all the tiredness and everything, too, that you can just belt it out like that. Thank,
6: Thank you so yeah. much.
0: And. Good mic technique, the way you moved away from the mic. Absolutely. Good idea. Our <laughs> 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 yeah. engineer nods in appreciation. Um, so at, let's hear another song. You, you've got a couple more here Unknown Kiss, Antes de Amare. Uh, what, what are they?
5: Uh, Unknown Kiss is uh, w- w- one of the very few English songs that we have. Um, that one's also really popular.
6: Yeah. Yes, that's yes. love.
0: a little bit of unknown kiss and we're talking with scene color it's david aquino and chrisia Raguel- regalado and what tell us about that song what, what was that about
6: well um this song well, i guess we'll hear unknown kiss next but this song is called Antes de Amarte, and it's one of my favorite songs um
0: yeah that one wasn't in english was it
6: <laughs> yeah <laughs> um what i'm what i'm actually saying with the lyrics I'm speaking of a love that created this ongoing river within a, the person. And once like, that love wasn't reciprocated or unrequired love, it became ice. And once the person was conscious of, of the situation and willing to move on, as the heart started to pump again, the ice melted and became tears. So that's why I say, y estas lágrimas, hielo derretido del corazón.
0: wonderful! <laughs> good old heartbreak, Cheers always, heartbreak. always good yeah. for a song. Yeah. I
3: had a question about uh, dealing with stereotypes when you think about uh, uh, Spanish uh, performing language bands coming from South Los An- from Los Angeles, Motley, Los Lobos, and there. they had. The, the, to deal with the issues of stereotypes and all that, do you see yourself overcoming challenges because you perform in Spanish and just the bookings might not quite be there because simply because you do some songs in Spanish?
6: Um. Well, I feel like definitely music has given us a pass to <laughs> everywhere. And we have, our audience is very diverse. We have from everywhere and... Even though they don't understand the lyrics, they're still there. Uh, They feel it through the emotion. And like you said, stereotypes or stuff like that. Well, Mm -hmm. we do have a lot of situations where we arrive and people look at us like, oh, who are these kids? Like, what are they going (laughs) to do? And they always like just kind of like set us aside. Yeah. Yeah. But then once we start playing... And even if they walk away, there's been many times where we start a set with no one in front of us. Mm -hmm. And just because they heard they start to come like from everywhere yeah thank god (laughs) yeah
0: well we liked hearing your music and we're going to go out on we're going to get to unknown kiss we're going to play it out here (laughs) and and, uh thanks very much for joining us scene color it's chrisia ragalado and david aquino they'll be at the 10 doors bar and university village tonight
6: yes please come everyone please we really need your support
0: And uh, Nari Safavi, thanks for another good edition of Weekend Passport. And we will talk to you again next week, Monday on Worldview. We'll talk about Venezuela. Hope you can join us next week for Worldview. Worldview produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.